0: This could be it. For 16 weeks we've been walking line by line through Ephesians and there's a chance that tonight we can finish the book of Ephesians. Like yeah, I don't want to ever read that book again, you know. After tonight, if you've been to all 16 weeks, you can just take scissors and cut it out of the Bible cuz you've memorized it. For the last three weeks, we've uh, kept focusing on the word submission, so you'll be very happy to know if nothing else happens tonight, we are not focusing on that word anymore. All right. Let's uh, go forward a little bit and see what we can get out of the last part of chapter 6 in the book of Ephesians. After all of the ethical teaching that Paul has been giving since the middle of chapter 3, and I will not go back and belabor all that with a summary, he comes to these points and says finally be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power he's giving a closing exhortation about a very important topic here but I want you to notice that this power kicks off this new section that he's going to give be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power we've seen this word power before in Ephesians 1.19, the very chapter that begins his long summary of God's action, he talks about, in verse 19, the incomparably great power that's available to us who believe. He says it's that same power in verse 22 that placed Christ far above all other rule and authority, power and dominion. And we're going to be talking tonight about that power and authority, that rule, that dominion, So he's kind of reminding his readers, if you were listening to this letter, it wouldn't have taken 16 weeks to read it. You would have just heard it as a letter from beginning to end. So now he's reminding his readers. He's kind of closing with another bookend about that power. Finally, recall the power that I described earlier in my letter. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. He gives an imperative, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. We've encountered a couple of places in the book of Ephesians where he talks about the heavenly realms. Let me remind you of what that is. It's not heaven heavenly realms is the spiritual world that surrounds us. That's how Paul uses this word. The word literally, heavenlies, that we translate into the heavenly realms. So he's talking about a spiritual reality. And he comes out right here, a little bit uncharacteristic in the last few chapters, and says it very clearly. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Flesh and blood being a Semitic translation of just human. He's saying right out, our struggle is not against humans, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world. And in case you had any ambiguity about what those things are, he says, against spiritual forces of evil. Actually, those are kind of a building synonym. The repetition is meant to emphasize it, not meant really to say, well, there might be some rulers, there might be some authorities. He's actually building a repetition to emphasize the point. And the point is concluded in the spiritual forces of evil. So at the close of Ephesians, what he's talking about here is the dark forces, but his focus is on the imperative of being strong in the Lord and in his might and in putting on the full armor of God, which he's going to describe in just a moment. But there's a reason for it. Because our struggle is not against humans, but against spiritual forces of evil. Philip.
1: When I read like that last part, it's it rulers, authorities, powers, and against spiritual forces of evil, it doesn't seem to be mm-hmm. sep- or, or the same thing. It seems to be that they are separate things. Uh, at least with that word, and. Like I said, I'm not want to put like all this emphasis on one word that it translated. So I'm not sure, like, is that, I don't know, like, is there other versions that, like, interpret this differently? Like, because I feel like if you say that, the word and, how it's structured, that it doesn't, that it seems to be different things. Maybe related, but different.
0: Yeah, they're actually the same repetition. And if you're trying to separate them maybe with an English version of, like, an or, Like to say there could be this, or there could be that, or there could be this, or there could be that. He's actually kind of stacking them on top of each other. Yeah, he's making a very strong emphasis of repetition. The other thing that gives us confidence is he's already talked about these spiritual forces in Ephesians chapter 1 and Ephesians chapter 3. He's kind of mentioned them before, and nowhere in sight in Ephesians is anything other than spiritual authorities and spiritual... So, in other words, you can't read this as against, like, earthly rulers or earthly authorities, he's really talking about spiritual rulers, spiritual authorities, and before he's introduced them, now he's actually going to deal with them in the close of the letter. So he's brought them up in chapter one, he's brought them up in chapter three, and here he takes it home and says, now let's deal with how you have to stand firm against them. Alright? Yes.
1: Does this passage in any way, kind of like support the idea of like hierarchy and even like demonic forces? Or do we use this passage to like emphasize that or to say like maybe there's like this and this and this different like levels of like demons and
0: things like that? Yeah, I went down that rabbit hole a little bit to search that answer out because there is a belief in the church that somehow he's giving an ordering and most believe there's no ordering given at all. In fact, the view is not about them. The view, as Paul has been throughout the whole book of Ephesians, is on Christ. It's on his power and now he's turning to what, how we access that power but it's not really so much to teach as as Paul has done over and over he's assumed a reality and he's spoken about it without spending a lot of detail to explain how it works and your question actually comes from a number of people that I looked at that want to read into it a little bit and say well there must be some sort of ordering and actually understanding that because the grammar didn't really allow for an emphasis often without repetition the repetition is really what he's after not so much to try to create a hierarchy. I know some of us have heard of that. Like some people have said, well scripturally there's some hierarchy of the different types of dark forces. That's No one that I read supported that view. Everyone said the language. And, and Paul's writing doesn't even seem to support that. He's actually just writing as if these things are out there. And really, what we're dealing with now is this realm of the spiritual. The thing that gives us another clue, by the way, is his straight answer. Our struggle is not against humans. So anything else you want to read into these things, I know you're talking about the ordering of demons, but even going back to Philip's question like, well, what could those other things be? He's saying it's not human, but it is spiritual, and it's in the heavenly realm. So he's kind of taking out any argument that you could have, that he's really trying to make an argument for earthly authorities or powers or structures. By the way, not that those things aren't oppressive, but that's not in view here. That's not what he's specifically speaking about. Yes.
1: This is probably a question for near the end, but um, the whole idea of full armor of God, like, is there any support out of curiosity or anything else that, like, that Paul's already just made up that analogy, or if it was something that was actually a common analogy he was using for, like, that people already like, talked about different parts of the thoughts of truth and stuff like that, or is that just like, you sort of made together because you thought it was cool, or?
0: Paul uses the analogy in 1 Thessalonians. He just has a very abridged version of it. But actually, most people looking at the full armor of God see that the analogy comes actually from the book of Isaiah. And actually, let me go there for a moment, but I want to point this out before we do. There is a reason we're supposed to take on the full armor of God, but the discussion we're about to have about this full armor of God, it's going to sound like we're just putting on a fancy wardrobe, but there's a purpose, and that is so that you can stand against the devil's schemes. All right? Now, We may have to open up the discussion of is there a devil or not? What's your opinion? But he's assuming there is. And this word stand, you're going to see factors into his discussion of the full armor of God. So just keep your mind that there is a so that. He's explaining why. And that we're going to come back to this word stand because he's kind of giving us a picture of standing. So here he repeats, therefore, put on the full armor of God. So that when the day of evil comes, you will be able to stand your ground after you have done everything to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in its place, with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. Let me just stop there and show you the number of places that he's focusing on this. Standing, standing your ground, standing firm, feet fitted in a way that allows them to stand firm. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Philip's question is, what is the source of some of this information? Paul is actually referencing back to the book of Isaiah. Not in every one of these. Now remember, if you just looked at this and took out the analogy for a moment, None of the words that Paul is using should be that foreign to us because we see that he, throughout the book of Ephesians, he's been talking about words like faith and faithfulness and truth and salvation. He's been talking about the Spirit. He's been doing all that. So you could just strip all the analogy out and just say, stand firm in the truth, stand firm in your faithfulness, stand firm in these things. You, you could just say that. But he's borrowed parts of this analogy from Isaiah. Isaiah 59, 17 pictures God as having the breastplate of righteousness on and taking up the helmet of salvation because he does not find anyone else who is going to do it. So the Lord himself does it. And here it's interesting that Paul takes that analogy and borrows it and he's saying that we should take up the very thing that God has described as taking up. That shouldn't surprise you at this point if you've been tracking with us in Ephesians because all of Ephesians has been about us, being in Christ so much so that we're identifying in this way with the thing that God does God puts on the breastplate of righteousness God puts on this helmet of salvation and so he's saying you do the same he's using it as an analogy to say this is the attitude you should take on why so that you can resist and take your stand against the devil there may be people who choose not to do this And the tense here is interesting because it's stated in an imperative like, do this. But it's not something where he's describing like, you have this. He's actually saying, put this on. The way earlier he says, put on the new self. Take off the old self, put on the new self. He's describing action that we take on for ourselves. Do this. Put on the full armor of God. The other thing that's lost on us a lot of times, if you've ever sat through any message about the full armor of God, maybe you've thought about it individually, like, yes, I should do that. But Paul's tense is you, plural, put on the full armor of God. You as a body of believers. It would make no sense for Paul at the very end of a long letter about the unity of the church to suddenly switch to a very individual task for us to take on. That's not saying that we can't do these things individually, but his focus is on the body of Christ taking on this very thing that God has done to imitate that by analogy but he's saying you all do this you all put these things on there's also the feet fitted with the gospel of peace some people believe that he's borrowed that from Isaiah 52 7 Isaiah 52:7 is how lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news announcing peace that verse So again, the gospel and the peace concept comes so you can hear where somebody who's very familiar with it, I mean, even we're familiar with that, we know like almost no verses from Isaiah, but we do know how lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who bring good news and think that might be the place where he's borrowing that analogy from. But there is definitely a correlation to Isaiah 59 that he seems to have just taken and inserted uh, and then turned it around in a way that we're doing the very thing that God is seen doing because we are the body in this case, of the one he calls God here, is Christ. Okay? Any questions on this? Yes?
2: I would just say if it's directed more as at the
1: whole church, then um, do you think that it still applies to take it individually with the idea that Satan attacks individuals, or do you think this is more saying that Satan attacks
2: the whole church, or is there even a significance between those two?
0: Well, I think that this would be sheer speculation on my part that everyone's got to do their part as well. The reason I take that is the analogy he uses, especially the analogy of the shield, right? When he's talking about this breastplate of righteousness, right? And he's So some people say even though he's borrowed the analogy and the shield of faith, those are reminders of actually the way the Roman army is fully fitted. So he might have taken a couple of them from Isaiah, but he's actually describing more of how a Roman foot soldier would be dressed. And those two, especially like adding the breastplate of righteousness, something that you do. But the shield was actually meant to protect the whole flank of people, especially if used in a certain way. So if every single one of them used the shield in a certain way, they could actually attack and do really well with it. I don't know if people are trying to just take the analogy too far. Some people would say, "Hey, it's an analogy. Like, don't take it to the end where you start like deciding, well, how do we use the shield?" I mean, that might be a little bit too far. But I don't think it's strange to say that we all still have to do this so that we have collectively done this but he is speaking to us collectively and it is for us a wake-up call that not every single thing in the scripture is about me right I mean that's you know that's like I'm the center of the universe right like that's not scripture right but in this country it could be yes
2: Kind of interesting that you were just talking about the shield because there are people in the church that often do lose their faith or lose their faith for a time or maybe not in god but just faith and and other things or that things are going to work out for them and like the first thing i thought about is when the whole body has faith people around you have faith it helps to restore the individual as well so like it is important that the church as a whole like takes that on and has faith as a whole so that when the one person is struggling it sort of like covers them as well and can sort of bring them back
0: into that. Very good. Let me add a cautionary note. Some translations translate the word faith as faithfulness, which is slightly different in the English language, but in the Greek is the same word. And so you have to make a decision. Is he saying the shield of faith or the shield of faithfulness? And they're related very closely. Let me go back now for a moment to this verse. He was just saying that our struggle is not against humans it's against spiritual forces I want to bring up first Corinthians I'm sorry second Corinthians There's an important statement here that he makes he says I beg you when I come that I may not have to be as bold as I expect to be towards some people who think that we live by the standards of this world what's the background here Paul is facing a church that is questioning his authority is actually teaching things that just basically say don't listen to this guy And by the way, this guy is not very bold at all when he comes to speak to you. So he'll write you this harsh letter, but he can't say it to your face. That's the accusations being made against Paul. And Paul is going to write about this opposition. But in the context of this statement, he also starts to talk about where even the struggles we have as a body often come from. So he says, I beg you that when I come, I don't have to be as bold as I expect to be towards some people who think that we live by the standards of this world. For though we live in the world... We do not wage war as the world does. Sound familiar? The weapons we fight with are not weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments in every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. This part that I've underlined here on the screen is the part that I think would best describe and it's not a great it's not it's one verse but it's the part that would best describe where spiritual warfare comes from because that's actually the concept that Paul is hinting at in Ephesians the question that's often asked is when he says stand firm what are we to stand firm against like sure he's giving us an analogy Put on this, put on that, buckle this, have this, right? But what are we standing against? Well, he says it's so that we can stand against the devil, right? All right, but what is the devil doing according to Paul's other writing? And the closest thing we have is this verse that says, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. What does that mean? Does that have anything to do with apologetics? It could. Go with it. What do you think? Um, well, the demolishing arguments and every
3: pretension um, kind of defending what the, um, the true beliefs, the true actions of the, of the church are. So the, the apologetics, apologia meaning like defense, giving a defense for um, what the church holds true and then yeah, holding to that is the knowledge that we have in love.
0: If I said the word spiritual warfare to you, what do you think of? What what, what thought comes to mind if I say spiritual warfare? Demon
1: possession.
0: Demon possession. Anyone else? What other words come to that? Is that the best? How many people think that's the first thought that comes to mind? Is that one of the first? One of the first? Okay. Did you have another comment?
2: Well, kind of on both. Um, I guess what I think is, if not demon possession, but just um, negative attitudes or negative spiritual, whatever, if it's demons around you that are like, either attacking you through other people saying things that are negative to tear you down or like negative thoughts that want to just turn you like away from what you believe or to make you believe that you can't do all things through Christ or just anything that's gonna affect your spirituality. And so like as far as like the arguments and stuff like that against the knowledge of God, like my thought and how that goes with spiritual warfare is just anything like you start to think like, well maybe this part of the Bible isn't as important. Or maybe I don't have to do this. Or like getting drunk once in a while, who cares? Like it's a new age, it's a new time, like it's just cultural, whatever. So it's all these arguments, not only like apologetics or like really sophisticated arguments about science, but any arguments that we start to believe ourselves, our own lies, or like things that we start to tell ourselves, you know better. Like when you read, especially through Ephesians, we read verses that were so clear. So it's like you know better. So when you think those things, you'd be like, no. Like, I'm not going to make an excuse. I know better. I'm going to take this thought and make it obedient to Christ and be like, no, this is not obedient to Christ. No, this is not what you want for me.
0: Yes, I think that's very close. Let me qualify it a little bit, though. First, to back up, when most of us think of spiritual warfare, it is true that a lot of us think of some struggle with demon possession, with, with, you know, those kinds of things. Most people who look at the subject far more than I have, but I've looked at it a number of times now in the years that we've been doing Exodus, pretty much come to the same conclusion. Demon possession is like the smallest, 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 smallest percentage of spiritual warfare, if you can even count it in spiritual warfare. And the reason for that is because what Paul is describing here is the types of oppressive attitudes, the things that war against our knowledge of Christ. Now remember, the reason I want to qualify what you said and add to, I think apologetics is part of it, is to Paul, knowledge is not just a head thing. Paul believes that it's a knowledge like you know Christ, both in a relational sense and know about him, and who he is. But the focus here is taking the thoughts captive. So I think you were right when you say that there are times when we have to come down. Now that does not lead to an unthinking faith. It does not mean that you cannot examine and argue. It does not mean that we don't have to re-examine even things that we hold. It does not mean that we can't look and do even scientific investigation, even theological investigation, and even have disagreements in the body as we often do about what certain things mean. That is not the point. However, his context is saying that what we're really trying to do is demolish the arguments that set themselves up against the knowledge of God. At some point, as you're identifying, that comes to the point where we're now starting to doubt the very knowledge of God. And he would say, that spiritual warfare is designed to do that. It's designed to get you to that point. It's a kind of oppression that wars against your mind. It's not going to manifest itself with your head spinning around or any of those things that we're so... We like those extraordinary things. We focus on them. Paul's not focused on them at all. In fact, we don't see that focus in Ephesians. We don't even see it in his letters. His focus, when he talks about the spiritual forces, or the dominions, or the powers, which, by the way, he mentions either the devil, Satan, or the dominions, the dark forces, in every letter except Philemon. So he has a knowledge, but he doesn't talk about them too much. Because his focus is on Christ, not on those things. And in this case, what he's doing is he's giving us a warning to just identify what it is. We're fighting with weapons that aren't of this world. On the contrary, the weapons we have have divine power to demolish strongholds. But what are we demolishing? What strongholds are we demolishing? Those arguments that set themselves up against the knowledge of God. I guess in one way you could say what Paul is saying is if you reach the end of the analysis and you're concluding there is no God, you've been deceived. That would be his analysis. He's not talking about possession. He's just talking about the kinds of things that war against us. Why is that so important? Because to Paul, the knowledge of Christ is what makes us to be in Christ. That's the whole point that he's been driving towards. And anything that prevents that is exactly what you would call a win for the spiritual forces. That's exactly what they want to see. That's his view. It's a mouthful. Yeah? I guess I
1: don't, I don't see where it ties in as much. Um, Because like when he talks about like rulers, authorities, um, powers, forces, like it seems to personify like a person or like a demon or something that's much more like that. And I'm missing where you're drawing that line like to the thought.
0: In this description, he's saying that the weapons we fight for are not the weapons of this world. But here he's saying it in the positive, like the weapons we fight for have these divine powers and they're going to demolish the strongholds. And then he goes on in this one verse to describe what the stronghold is that we're trying to, to destroy. So
1: like the arguments and things like that, those are the weapons of, or the manifestation of, the rulers, the authorities, the powers of the
0: dark. That's how they were against us. They set up strongholds. They set up arguments. Let's call them arguments because he defines what the stronghold is. He says we're going to demolish strongholds. What are the strongholds? Arguments. So their job, if they had one, to war against you would be to set up arguments against the knowledge of God. We picture something vastly more complicated and much cooler for a horror movie, and his view is uh, that's what they're trying to do. Because by knocking you out of the knowledge of God, that's actually a complete victory in their mind. Now now we're like stepping on the edge of speculation, but we do know that he's saying that seems to be what they're doing. And we have to take every thought captive to Christ. And he would also say and we should put on this armor of God. Do you have a comment?
3: Yeah, I think we got to what I was going to say, but I kind of brought up another thought Um, and maybe Cormac's a better person to ask, but even just kind of the psychosocial idea of, um, you know, there are different um, either addictions or or disabilities, right, that are are, uh, psychological. Um, And even just wondering, you know, what might the spiritual component of those things Thing. Not that you can necessarily just cast out a demon of somebody and it just goes away, because there can be a lot of damage done there, but I mean, maybe even some of the core of those disabilities and things, you know, have a spiritual to them.
0: Yeah, I want to differentiate them because the even the question implies that we need to distinguish between demon possession and some sort of psychological issue, right? And Just to be clear, this, I think, doesn't even include demon possession, right? So that would be like almost another question. Here he's saying that spiritual attack is getting us to doubt the very knowledge of God. How does that get done? I'm just going to pause right there and say, we actually did a five-week series on spiritual warfare way back when, so that nobody probably in this room was here, except maybe Monique, who features loudly in that one. Um... (laughs) It's on our website. There's there's five weeks, two of them that talk about the roles of angels and demons to the best we can understand from Scripture because it's very obscure. And then three weeks that spend time just talking about the armor of God. So I'm not going to go into three weeks of talking about the armor of God because we've already done it. So if you want to know more about that, look into it. But as part of that, we did consider some of the issues of possession and and just where do we draw the line about responsibility. And that is a point I do want to make. Nowhere in spiritual warfare has it led us to make some of the two mistakes that are often made. One is to just disbelieve in anything spiritual. I mean, Paul clearly doesn't take that view. To him it's a reality. So as we study the book of Ephesians and we say we trust this, he's taking this as a reality. So one mistake we often make is to just find a material explanation for everything. And I think that would be error. At the same time, on the other extreme... We got people who got demons behind every bush, and everything is something spiritual, right? And you know that there's movements in the church to go into communities and bind demons and call them out and name them and rank them and do all these kinds of things, and that is nowhere found in the scriptures. I can't find anything like that. So we err when we go to either extreme. One more verse. I just want to point out real fast. Second Corinthians four four. It says, the God of this age has blinded the mind of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Let me say that again. The God of this age. He's not talking about God. The God of this age in Paul's parlance would be the devil. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers. That's his view. You disagree? But if you want to understand, like where's Paul coming from in telling us this? He's saying that That's the spiritual warfare that's going on. The God of this age is blinding the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ who is the image of God. And you know that in Paul's way, not finding Christ or not being able to see him for who he is, not knowing him, is devastating because it means that we're not in the body of Christ. So, looking at it again as we've done... As I said, you could spend some time if you want to on our website going through each one of these, but the main points that he's trying to make is standing firm. So that you can stand firm, and here's all the things that you would take on. So that you could stand firm. Notice that most of them are defensive. Some people get kind of wigged out by the fact that there's this kind of military analogy, but let's be clear, he's not talking about a, what's that organization called, Crusade? No, he's not talking about that organization. (laughs) Nothing like that. He's talking just about the church, the body, putting on this defensive armor to stand firm. There is one offensive weapon, though, and that is the one where he says, take the helmet of salvation, that's so defensive, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. So that one, he says, is actually a sword. And we know that he uses that analogy elsewhere as a sword. Uh, here, I want to caution that, you might say the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Some people doubt he's talking about the Bible. He's talking about the words that proceed from the Lord. And that may be a greater set than just the scriptures. All right, And actually, Christ is described in Revelation as even like his words coming out like a sword. Right, So we know that, that this image is also used in the New Testament... Uh, It is not necessarily synonymous with just the Bible, although another analogy, he does use it in that way elsewhere. But we just see the word of God go, oh, he's just talking about the Bible. Like, the Bible's a sword, I smack people with it, right? That's what I'm (laughs) supposed to do. It's not what he has in mind. Okay, but it does have this power and is described offensively. And that's very important. Uh, because he sees it as the strength, and why? Because remember, even this part, that chapter six, is flowing out of chapter five, where he's saying, "Be filled with the Spirit." So the Spirit still figures prominently here as the power that is actually available to the body collectively. All right? Yes. Well, I
1: would say he's definitely not talking about the Bible. The Bible didn't exist at that point. Um, I mean, they had the Torah, they had the prophets, the writings, but
0: they didn't have the Bible. And he would have referred to them that way. He would not have referred to them the way that we do in this way. So that's why it's that's why it's correct what you're saying. Like He, he would have referred to it as the law and the prophets or the law or whatever it is. His view of the Spirit is much more than that. The Spirit obviously does way more within the church than simply become the Scripture. However, I think that what you take from it is, these are the words that come from the Lord. Because even Jesus, in his own battling with Satan, had a similar experience where his offensive response to Satan's temptation was what? To quote the scriptures. Yeah, so I think that that's part of it. Like That's why I'm saying it's a broader, not just saying, oh, it's not that. It's actually that plus a lot of other things because Paul's view is the Spirit infuses the body, gives the body power. We're supposed to live in the power of the Spirit, and among that is the words of God. Okay, So we couldn't just chop off which is the word of God and say, I yeah, he couldn't have meant that. It means just don't take it as synonymous with the Bible. All right. Anything else on the armor of God, by the way? Like I said, I will leave it for the three whole talks that we do on what the analogy is and how it works and if you're interested more in the verses that identify where do we even know about Satan and where do we get those things check out that series. It's a very controversial subject in the Bible. Many people say there's no verses in the Old Testament on Satan. Some people believe that it's kind of in the double meanings of certain passages. Some people believe that it's everywhere. Of course you know where I believe about that. So Paul goes on and says and pray in the Spirit. This is not a new subject, by the way. It's on a new screen on this PowerPoint. In your Bible, it might be a new sentence or a new paragraph, even. There might be some spaces between it, but grammatically, it's actually connected to what he's already been talking about. This is not a new thought. It actually continues right in. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. Elsewhere, we know the verses is just like pray without ceasing. But here he says it in this way, Pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. It's still that stand ready and alert. Now some people would say that the prayer is not part of this whole armor. You know, does it matter? I mean, he's giving us a stand firm and here's how you do it. And he's saying pray and keep alert. So you could say that this is actively part of what we're supposed to be doing at all times he looks and says pray for all the Lord's people it's still a focus on us collectively not me 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 interestingly Paul says pray also for me which he doesn't often say that whenever I speak words may be given me so that I may fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I'm an ambassador in chains pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should That word fearlessly, probably better translated as openly, without hesitation, liberally, without feeling any kind of compulsion to hold back, without feeling anyone kind of encroaching on me. And he's saying pray, which is interesting. He's not just praying for courage, because he says I'm an ambassador of Christ. Paul's view is even the words that I'm going to say, the things that I'm going to speak are going to come from the Spirit. So pray. Pray that even the words are unleashed in me, that I not hesitate, that I not hold back. Pray to give me boldness when I speak. He wants to reveal the mystery of the gospel. And remember, in Paul's parlance, mystery doesn't mean something that's unknown. It means something that was previously unknown that God has now revealed. So he's saying, pray for me, that I can boldly make known this gospel that is now revealed to everyone that's a part that we also have studied numerous times two different series on prayer and the questions on prayer that i encourage you to look into even as paul is winding down this letter there seems to be an urgent call for himself for prayer Yes.
1: Um, like the inpray in the spirit like i don't really know what that means practically like, like i understand that like the holy spirit is our mediator through you know Jesus is the mediator through, I don't know it's like is it just sort of phraseology like or praying that we're praying for what God wants is that what the in spirit is talking about I do know about that idea it's just praying for God's will is that
0: do you want to answer well
3: yeah maybe in part I mean I think I think the scriptures teach especially in like John 14 and 16 that the spirit actually resides in us and actually leads and guides us into all truth and so I think you actually can that God prompts you in certain ways to pray for certain situations and occasions and things like that. So I really do believe that there is a listening aspect to prayer that Paul is referring to and that uh, the Spirit may lead us and, and teach us what and how to pray, essentially.
0: And I want to point out that what he doesn't mean is pray like in some sort of spiritual language or pray in tongues or anything. He's meaning pray in the power of the Spirit, which as Morgan is pointing out, is supposed to be our power and resides in us. So he's really saying, like, access the Spirit, access the power of the Spirit in prayer on all occasions. Yes?
2: Could you look at it more like sort of as a posture that you take to prayer? Like before you pray, just be like, you know, Holy Spirit be with me, like help to guide me. It's like a posture to open your heart to where you're opening the communication to possibly hear from God, or at least just open yourself up in sort of that humility, like, before you begin to either praise god or ask for things or whatever it might be
0: yeah i think it's a practical step and but i'll also remind you that paul would probably remind that we are in christ already and it's the spirit that dwells in us right so i mean he's got a much more intimate perspective than even calling on god to go hey now be with me he'd he'd or say to like, help
2: you see it for people that right. struggle you know. Because it's, I mean, not everyone can just pray and be like, oh, I hear God, or, you know, like it's, I don't
0: know. Yeah, I just think it's interesting that his his kind of urgent call is be alert and always keep on praying, right? I mean, if, I don't know what you think about the armor of God. I don't think if, I don't know if you have fully grasped it, if you want to spend time understanding it more because you believe that it's important to stand firm against spiritual attack, which I would encourage you to consider seriously, but... We would probably think about that in that context, and then when we get to prayer, we go, "Yeah, we should pray, right? We just should." But we don't take it with the same kind of urgency that he's giving, and we think, "Ah, he's kind of winding down the letter. He's got to say something like that, right? Like, isn't that what you do at the end of every Christian meeting? Is have a prayer or something like?" So it's an urgent call for the body and for himself as well. Yes.
3: My question that kind of comes up is, uh, and maybe Paul is answering with telling them to pray is. You know, what, what do you do if you believe you are under spiritual attack? You know, I mean, there are many people who would say, you know, they, they don't have any mind to that, but you may even get into the play, like, you know, I've been in a funk for a while, or I'm hurting, or I'm just entering to, like, is he saying that the answer to that is praying? Is that, I mean, that's what we're supposed to do? Because, to me, it would seem very difficult to be in that place and say, like, what the heck am I supposed to do anyways, you know?
0: Yeah, to the, the be totally truthful, Paul never gives a very accurate description of what to do when you're under attack, right? Paul's description is how to stand firm against it, right? And he he gives that prescription and even to pray and to keep watch. But that's the place where I think a lot of us have ended up kind of speculating, coming up with formulas and systems and orders and ranks and different kinds of prayers and I would almost say incantations at times. Like, we get dangerously close to becoming very animist in our views when it comes to the thing. And the truth is, most of Scripture really leaves the subject of the spiritual forces kind of undealt with. The focus is on Christ and the victory of Christ. And even though he gives these defensive postures to take, he really doesn't give much advice on what to do when you're under that attack. um, Other than to continue doing those things. And so... I'm not saying that it, that, I mean, how could prayer ever hurt, right? He's actually giving us a posture of praying always, all kinds of prayers. So that I don't think is going to be like something you would withdraw. You would continue to do that anyway, and I don't see how that would ever be against it. In our series on spiritual warfare, we actually speculate at some point to go, well, maybe the whole idea of prayer is somehow that you know we're somehow engaging, uh, just uniting and asking God to unleash whatever he's doing to withhold Satan's power or to allow it or whatever is going on. That's a whole subject I don't want to slide into. But more than that, it's really just not described. The focus is on the victory of Christ. The focus is on being in Christ. The focus is on the body and who we are together and what's coming in this life and for us in the next, and not so much on this attack. Monique?
2: Um, I think... Two that <laughs> the first victory that goes to spiritual warfare on the negative is when we approach it by saying what am I going to do do I just pray about this and we do that so often and we forget that it's like the whole body and like the armor is the whole body so if someone is struggling personally like if you think you're under spiritual attack I think the first question is like who can I go to, let me surround myself in the fold of the people that love Christ. Like, can you pray for me too? Can I be around you? Will the church that has faith be able to, like, infuse me with some sort of strength? And so I just think it's really important not to just, like, single out one thing, and, and it is difficult when you're in that funk to say, well, I'm praying, I'm praying, I'm praying by myself, nothing's happening, nothing's changing, but if you look at it as a collective, And the church is praying for people like you or you specifically or just has faith or is around you and is like taking, you know, all of your hurt in with them as well and saying, I'll hold up this part for you for a little while while you're struggling. I think that's like a really important part of spiritual warfare and personal struggling is to not struggle alone or to think that you're going to have one answer for yourself that's going to, I don't know, pull you out of it.
0: Okay, I'll close with this verse in fact I'm sorry I don't remember the actual citation when Jesus comes to Peter and warns him he says Peter Satan has asked me to allow him to sift you like wheat basically to mess with you Peter said this part isn't in the Bible Peter said you said no right Christ <laughs> that part's not in the Bible but going back with what Morgan was saying, Jesus' next words are, but I have prayed for you. Maybe that's the weapon that we use the most often after taking on this defensive posture. Maybe we actually pray the words of Scripture as Jesus did in facing temptation on three occasions. Maybe we just follow his example that you're like, Lord, you're Lord. What like, do you mean? You, like he came and he asked you and you didn't, you didn't say no. He just said, Peter, I've prayed for you. How many of us would think that's good enough? But Jesus thought it was good enough. And maybe that's the final point. He closes the letter this way. Tychicus, the dear brother and faithful servant of the Lord, will tell you everything, so that you also may know how I am and what I am doing. I am sending him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage you. So Tychicus is the guy who's actually taking the letter He's going to take it around to the different churches and he will inform them of all the other news about Paul and how he's doing, which is probably to say Paul's in chains and in prison, probably not doing so good. But notice that Paul, despite this position that he's in, wants to encourage them because he knows that he's doing exactly what he should be doing and he's preparing for his ultimate defense of the gospel in front of Caesar. And maybe that's where his focus really is and that's why he wants the prayer For the words that he's going to speak as Morgan reminded us when he kicked off the very first two verses of Ephesians he said that Paul often connected the Hebrew greeting shalom peace with that play on the Greek word that meant that came out to grace and here he ends in exactly the same way peace to the brothers and sisters and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ grace to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love, peace, and grace, he closes with. So what do we do after all these weeks of going through a book like this? My encouragement to you is that you go back at some point after we've taken all of this information that we've done and edited it down into the different podcasts that come out of this. Some of you have been here for a couple of them. Some of you have trudged through most of them. I will tell you from experience you'd be amazed what comes out of the comments in this group. How much, when you go back and you listen to them later, you realize there was so much light illuminated on subjects and so many things. I'm also heartened to know, as you guys know, that when we put these up online within six months to a year, for every one of the sessions that we did, there'll be at least a thousand people who've downloaded that and listened to the different comments that you've made in here. And it's so unique to have a forum where you get to actually say, I don't agree, or I don't understand, or explain that, or what does that mean? But I'm glad, I'm thankful for the fact that you gave that feedback because other people are going to hear that and you're going to be asking their questions for them in that way. I really think, and I would commend this to you strongly, just give me some time to get them all up there. (laughs) That if you go back and you actually listen to them in order, you'll, you'll be amazed at how they all somehow connect. And it's not even by design. It's just the way somehow God works through this group to bring out things we brought out before and they all kind of connect somehow in some amazing way. So do that at some point. I encourage you to do that. Let me pray and close. God, thank you for every spiritual blessing that you have given to us, including just the place to meet here just the fact that your spirit infuses our discussion, just the fact that you have given us just a love for your word and that you've given us a mind that struggles with it at times and wants to know it more deeply and a heart that wants to know you ever more. Lord, I'm thankful that these things can be done together. I'm thankful that even as we wrestle, more light is produced, not just heat, that we actually illuminate things and understand them better. Thank you, Lord. I personally thank you for all the study that's gone into this because I have come out changed and renewed and having a deeper understanding of who you are and a greater appreciation for this letter of Ephesians. Thank you, Lord, that we get to do this in this place. And thank you, Lord, that other people are going to benefit from it, that you have put voice into this conversation so that other people can listen and grow deeper and more connected to you. And I pray that you unleash that. I pray that though we have no control over it, that these things go far and wide and touch people who are really struggling to understand what it means to be in you, in Christ, and unified together as a church. Pray all these things in your name. thanking you, Lord, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.